Hello and welcome to the Late Discovered Club, the podcast that aims to give late discovered autistic women a voice. We bring you real life self-discovery stories and compassionate conversations with some truly incredible women. Created and hosted by me, psychotherapist Catherine Astor, whose own self-discovery came at 42. With the behind the scenes technical expertise coming from my eldest daughter, Katie Ava. This podcast really is a mum and daughter collaboration. Joining me today on the podcast is Laura Kirby, co-founder of Nest, Neurodivergent Education Support and Training. She's been working with autistic children and young people for over 21 years. Her teaching career began as a lecturer in the supported learning department of a large mainstream college, and then as a life skills coordinator at a residential college for young people with severe physical disabilities. Laura specialised in autism back in 2002, when she became the autism champion for the Surrey College Network. She then became assistant head teacher, then head teacher at an independent special school for autistic children. In August 2016, Laura set up Healthy Happy Me to support children and teens who are struggling with anxiety and other emotions. And in 2018, she launched Kite, a therapeutic learning service which provides bespoke therapeutic learning programs for children who are unable to access school due to high anxiety or other needs. Back in 2020, Laura spoke at the first ever conference on PDA in the United States and is now an advisor for PDA North America. And Laura is the author of The Educator's Experience of PDA, which will be published by Jessica Kinsley Publishing later in 2023. Laura is neurodivergent herself and received a diagnosis of ADHD in her 40s. She comes on the podcast to talk about her autism self-discovery, This being the first time she has spoken publicly about what she's slowly discovering about herself. Hello, it's Catherine and Katie here and we need your help and we need your support. If you love the Late Discovered Club, you would be massively supporting the work that we do in helping to deconstruct stereotypes and give the next generation visibility of autistic women and you can show your support and your help in three ways number one become a community member or a community champion number two you could buy us a coffee and number three you could rate and review the podcast or the episodes that you're enjoying it's really important that we get that visibility, that the people who need to find us are able to find us. And by you rating and reviewing the show, it helps to give us that visibility. And keep listening. We've got many more stories and many more episodes to come. Hello, Laura. 
Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Where I want to start with you is really exploring where you're at, because you have been working with autistic children and young people for over two decades. And 10 years ago, you founded PAST, Positive Autism Support and Training, to support families who have autistic children. And then last year, you co-founded NEST, Neurodivergent Education Support and Training, You've also had a career as a head teacher, an independent school for autistic children, and now an education consultant helping to support autistic learners across the learning life cycle. And you're a PDA advisor for North America, but it wasn't until your 40s that you discovered your own neurodivergence. So I just want to explore with you, Laura, what the trigger or the turning point was for you that made you explore your own autism, given that context. Yeah. Um, so I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was 46. My, my son has an ADHD diagnosis. So he was diagnosed um, about seven years ago now. I've sort of lost track of time a bit. Um, and I remember when he was diagnosed, the, the paediatrician that did the diagnosis explained that there's a very strong genetic influence in ADHD and, and said, to, said to James's dad and I, you know, explain that. So, well, one of you will be ADHD. And my husband looked at me and went, well, that's, that's you, that is. Um, and I, I, I was an ADHD, well, I am an ADHD trainer as well. And I'd be doing ADHD training thinking, yeah, I do that. And I do that. And I do that. But I think for me, what was the, what was the sort of trigger was during lockdown, I started to change the way that I worked and I connected with a lot of um, neurodivergent advocates sort of um, through social media, really, and and sort of chatting to them. And some of them were very late diagnosed uh, women as well. And sort of seeing the, the, the impact that that had had on them, like the positive impact. So I, I decided to have an ADHD assessment and um, you know that that was like the first step really in in the, you know understanding that I am neurodivergent I think like a lot of people I experienced some imposter syndrome around my diagnosis I was a bit like oh am I really like you know you know did I did I sway the assessment did I did I tell the truth and you know I know that I did and actually I've really embraced like the the, the ADHD diagnosis uh, initially but then having that ADHD diagnosis, um, it, it allowed me to start being more authentic and being more my, my authentic self um, and realising that I have spent a huge amount of my life masking, masking my difficulties, trying to present myself as something that I'm really not. So I think it's almost like the layers started to come off. And as those layers came off and I started being more, more myself, a lot of people then came were saying to me, well, you're autistic as well. You're autistic. And I have a lot of uh, female adult friends who are autistic and they're like, you know, they're like, Laura, you are autistic. And I was like, am I, am I like, you know, again, the imposter syndrome uh, kicked in a little bit. Um, but I remember sort of talking to, to this, a group of friends in, in, in the summer of last year, there were four of us that were all together three women all diagnosed autistic ADHD and and I was like why do you think I'm autistic they're like because you just are like there's like you just are Laura um and so 
I think the layers are starting to come off and I'm now, you know, I'm not quite at the stage where this is the first time I've, I've actually talked publicly about this, but I'm at the stage now of, of recognising that a lot of my difficulties and strengths are because of my my neurodivergence, which includes autism. And, and again, I was sort of thinking about this the other day, and I think that it's such a shame at the moment that we really ca uh, categorise neurodiversity like autism, ADHD, PDA, dyslexia. I think it's much more complex than that. I think there's so much crossover and coexistence between the different, you know, between the different sort of conditions and so many similarities. But it's a, it's a kind of work in progress in terms of really identifying myself and recognising that my neurodivergence includes autism as as well as ADHD. So a mirror has been held up to you then by Exactly. Yeah. And I think for me as a professional it's been it's it's quite difficult because I've worked with autistic young people for such a long time like as you said 21 years now. So I was thinking does that does that mean I'm rubbish at my job because surely if I'm autistic and I've been working as an autism consultant for such a long time why didn't I recognise that? Why didn't I see that in myself? But I actually look at it, like reverse that and think, actually, the reason I've worked in this job for such a long time and the reason I'm good at it and the reason that I do connect so well with autistic children and young people is because I'm so like them as well. I think the other thing is as well is that I started working with autistic students 21 years ago. And, you know, 21 years ago, the kind of like our understanding of autism was very, very different. Like I was taught it is it predominantly uh, predominantly affects boys and men, like 75 percent male, 25 percent female. We know now that that is completely inaccurate. That's completely wrong. So I think a lot there was a lot of bias there in my head about what autism was and wasn't because I was being very much um led by the kind of medical model as well and I, yeah. and I think we really need to move away well we know that we have to move away from that so that whole inner world and inner narrative that you understand now you wouldn't have seen 20 years ago because you know we're only just starting to hear many of these stories and these narratives and have an understanding of this so just going back to your assessment then how did you find your getting your ADHD assessment then? How how did you navigate that? Well, I actually spoke to um, a, another professional who she's actually an OT and that she had actually recently been di diagnosed with ADHD. Um, and interestingly, she went for her assessment because she thought she was autistic um, and the the psychiatrist who did the assessment said, no, you're 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 not autistic, but you are ADHD, which I thought was really, really interesting. Um, so I did I, I, I went on her recommendation. Um, I did uh, I did go for a private assessment. Um, even just doing the assessment was so interesting, like he he focused on things that I had kind of buried, like that I didn't really think about. So he really. Um, he really focused on my time at university um, and the way that I kind of acted and, and behaved and presented when I was at university, which I I still look back on my time at university as, as being the happiest time, well, one of the happiest times of my life. But again, looking at that, looking back at that now, 
it was the first time that I really met my tribe. It was the first time that I was with people that I felt I could be truly authentic with. Um, and interest, I'm still in touch with the the three like best friends that I made at university are still three of my best friends now. And one of them was recently diagnosed also with um, ADHD, is also questioning whether she's also autistic. I think I think all of those girls potentially are neurodivergent. And I think it was the first time that I I was with people that I could be myself with. Um, and I and again, looking back, my time in school was was really quite unhappy. Um, and I was quite a high achiever in school. I was under quite I, under quite a lot of pressure um, from my I don't think they did it on purpose. But, you know, there was a big thing made of the fact I was the first one of the family to go to university. And, um, you know, I I. I masked a lot. I actually wrote a post about it today. Like I didn't know that I was anxious when I was younger. I didn't. I didn't know that there was another way to feel. I thought it was normal to to have butterflies in your tummy all the time. I thought it was normal to be waiting for something to go wrong and and like be carrying this feeling of dread all the time. I didn't know that 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 was a thing. I just thought that was what everybody felt all the time. So where where would you say, Laura, that you are on your very new self-discovery, your autistic self-discovery, obviously coming on here and talking about this for the first time? How are you finding self-disclosure then in, obviously, in your profession, in your family, um, in your wider circle of friends, in your world? How how has that been? It, it depends who I'm with and it depends who I'm discussing it with. So my female autistic friends are like kind of like well of course you are why is it taking you so long (laughs) there is a little bit of I guess it's still that imposter syndrome there's still that like worry that people are going to think oh you know she's jumping on the bandwagon she's just saying she's autistic again that kind of professional concern of well if she thinks she's autistic why did she why is it why she be how can she have been in this world for such a long time without realizing that so i am at the moment embracing my neurodivergence i'm i'm embracing that and i'm i'm still very much like i said earlier the layers are still coming off they're still coming off um i I mean, I'm embracing my special interests so much more. So, for example, for Christmas, I got a doll's house and this doll's house has become this, you know, intense special interest that brings me so much happiness. Like it is something that I get really excited about doing. I can spend hours doing it and I'm not embarrassed to talk about that. Like I'm not embarrassed that I'm a nearly 50 year old woman that like likes doll's houses and I've set up a... an Instagram page for that um, and I've been sort of sharing lots of information about that so it's it's been incredibly um, freeing to be able to sort of like I say start to peel off these these layers. Mm. Um, what do you think you've struggled with then what's the what's been the most challenging thing about your autistic self-discovery of, of all this data that you've collated in nearly 50 years of of you you've talked about imposter syndrome you've talked about you know not really feeling whether or not I can take up my space in in this arena as yet um 
what what's been the most challenging thing about that self-discovery for you the doubt the the doubt of like am I really and I I, and I I I remember reading um a, a post probably about a year ago on Facebook saying if you if you think you're autistic, if you're questioning if you're autistic, I can't remember the exact wording, if you suspect you might be autistic, then you probably are. And I remember sort of reading that and thinking, okay, like maybe I am. I I guess there's there's a worry for me that people won't believe me. People like will question whether or not I really am. And I have seen and spoken to people who have been devastated because they've self-identified as neurodivergent and then they've been for an assessment and have been told no you're not and that's been really devastating for them it's like this sense of identity that they discovered themselves has then been taken away from them so I think there's there's a little bit of fear there um I think it also it would be very difficult for me to get a formal diagnosis of autism because I do do ADOS. I'm part of an two multi multidisciplinary assessment teams. I know the assessment process inside out, and I think it would be very difficult for me to be able to have an assessment because I know what the assess- the assessors are looking for. I know what the assessment is, and I think for me, I would overthink that because I'm a massive overthinker, and I'd probably be thinking, "Oh, I can't say that because that's what they're looking for," or. Mm. Or if I said the, you know, if I said what I really felt or, you know, my interaction was entirely natural, I know that I would come out of that thinking, oh, did you did you kind of exaggerate that? So I think for me to have an assessment would be very, very difficult, which is why I think self-identification is is so valid. And I think we need to start really embracing self-identification more. I I remember someone saying, um, you know, in, in a in a webinar I listened to a few years ago, um, people don't get people's sexuality is not diagnosed. Like you don't have to be diagnosed, you know, gay, straight, bi, whatever you are. Like you just are. And I I would love for us to be able to accept people's neurodivergence in the same way that you don't that you don't have to be diagnosed to, yeah. to be really accepted into the community. I, I I believe assessment is important, you know, for many people. I'd never say to anybody, no, you don't need an assessment. I think particularly for children, it's it, it's almost essential in terms of getting the right support. Um, but I think there is still a little bit of a little bit of stigma, maybe, about self-identification that people still don't see it. Yeah, a huge amount of stigma, which is why this podcast exists, because yeah. why it's, you know, very much shining a lens on and a spotlight on autism. You've talked about your work. So you have effectively spent this nearly, you know, 20, 30 years of your working career surrounding yourself with neurodivergent people, yeah, friends, you found your tribe in those yeah. people. Um how do you think you've been able to nurture your autistic strengths then through your work? What is it about what you do that has really enabled you to to strength focus throughout your career? Because you've you've I mean you've done so much in the last thirty years. Yeah. I think when you work in education, everybody who works in education has a niche. Like you 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 get pulled in a in a in a in a certain direction. And I, I've only ever worked in specialist education. I've never worked in a mainstream setting. 
well, I, I worked in mainstream colleges, but within the supported learning departments of those colleges. And I can remember, you know, walking into to, to this college uh, on my first day, I have a degree in psychology and I'd worked in um, sort of care, like care provisions. And I desperately, desperately wanted to teach. So I went into teaching quite late. I was in my late 20s. And I remember walking into to a classroom of sort of 16 year old autistic students, mainly, mainly boys. And it just felt the, the most natural environment in the world for me to be in. You know, I hadn't had any autism training at that point. Um, I started doing my teacher training on the job, um, which, you know, in hindsight, you could say it was crazy to put somebody in a classroom that had had no train, no official training in anything. I didn't need training. I just could. I could just be with these students and I gravitated towards them. They, they gravitated towards me. Um, and I think that one of the one of the most important things that I've realized and I remember having this real wake-up call I did a conference an online conference again in lockdown and I was there was five of us all speaking and we we just had the the loveliest day like we all got on brilliantly we were so supportive of each other and I had this light bulb moment like at the end of the day and I'm like I just thought I am I am my most comfortable when I am with other autistic individuals like or other neurodivergent individuals like I can just be me. And again, what that made me realize was how much I had masked in other settings. Now I do have, I'm very lucky, I've got a lot of friends and a lot of my friends are neurotypical. But what I've realized, what, what I now know is like walking into a social situation, particularly a group situation with people I don't know, gives me such awful anxiety. And I'm now, I now accept that. I now allow myself to feel like that. So I'm much kinder to myself. Like we, I got an invitation a few weeks ago, one of my best friends who is neurotypical, our birthdays are very similar time of year. And I got a message from her a, few, a couple of days ago saying, oh, we're having a birthday party or having a party at the house. I know what this party will be like. This is going to be a big busy environment with a lot of people that I either don't know or know on a very superficial level mm. and my instant feeling I got was this whoosh of anxiety of, I don't want to go so whereas before my before my understanding of myself I would have put myself through that situation because I, I'm a massive people pleaser I do not like ever letting anybody down I can now be kinder to myself and think Laura you probably won't have a very good time or I will use alcohol as a crutch not that I'm an alcoholic but I will know that I will if I have a few glasses of wine I'll be like oh I can go in and be like the person that they call kind of all expect me to be mm. so sorry I feel like I've gone off on a massive no tangent. you haven't you haven't but, at all because we we were talking about your strengths and your work but also this is about identifying your struggles isn't it it's about giving yeah. yourself um, that airtime to be able to say actually these are the things whilst I I've created this environment for for myself to be able to work and to nurture those strengths mm -hmm. I also recognize that these are the areas where I massively struggle yeah. and and I can keep going through life struggling and I can keep putting on that mask but it's the it's the internalization isn't it of all of that 
and what that does to your nervous system, what that does to your mental health, how you find adaptations, whether that's through, um, you know, using alcohol as a way to enable you to be in those environments. Mm. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's that once you have this realization, that light bulb of actually, these are the things that I really struggle with and I I can't keep doing this to myself. I can't keep doing it. Mm -hmm. And you're already identifying some of these things. So that was really my next question for you, Laura, was what are the things that you have struggled with? Because on, on, on paper and on the face of it, you know, you've had this very successful career, you know, you're a very successful woman, but there are struggles that people do not see. People don't see your internalized anxiety. They don't see the lies. They don't see all of the fallout of masking. Mm. So what would you say as you've started, as you say, as you started to be more compassionate, a little bit kinder to yourself, Mm. putting yourself in these situations of where you have to mask, what have you noticed then about some of the things that you struggle with? I think rejection sensitivity is huge. And I remember, again, the the absolute light bulb moment I had when I first, well, I first heard about imposter syndrome, actually. And that was from a client. And it was a, it was, I was talking to a client who was really struggling with with her son's education and um, she was a lawyer and she said to me oh you know I'm a lawyer I can go into a courtroom I can do this and do this and that but when it comes to sort of advocating for my child I get like massive imposter syndrome and I was like oh I've never heard of that and I went home and googled it and did like a a checklist um and I I think I got like 100% (laughs) in terms of how you know how how I scored on this thing and then I then learned about rejection sensitivity dysphoria and I think that those those things they're so connected but they have absolutely ruled my life mm-hmm. and you know you said oh you've had this really successful successful career and you've been a head teacher I spent my whole time being a head teacher thinking I'm gonna get found out I'm a fraud somebody is going to kind of like walk into this school now and say, oh, you out, <laughs> you shouldn't be running this school. Um, I did my, the, the national professional qualification for headship. I spent my entire time on that program thinking I should not be here. And that led to me feeling anxious all the time. If you walk into work every single day and you think I shouldn't be here. I'm not good enough to be doing this job. I, I, you know, I'm a fraud. I'm a fake. You spend your entire, almost like looking over your shoulder, thinking when, you know, when's it going to go wrong? When's it going to go wrong? Now, looking back, I can see that I was a really good head teacher. Um, I was incredibly student focused. The students in my school loved me. Um, I was a very safe person for the students in that school. I had a great relationship with most of the parents. I had a great relationship with most staff in my school. But at the time, I didn't know it. So I think understanding how my brain works, understanding that my brain has been tricking me for nearly 45, you know, nearly 50 years now has been incredibly helpful. Um, And what that also allows me to do as well is that if the imposter syndrome kicks in, if the rejection sensitivity dysphoria kicks in, I can say to myself, your brain is lying to you, like it is it is tricking you. You know, you are good. You are really good at your job. You are this, you are that. So I've 
managed to stop blocking out those very negative things, which has been really, really helpful. The, the other thing is about I don't think those I don't think those are ever going to go away. Mm. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to not feel rejection sensitive. I don't think I'm ever going to feel like that I'm not an imposter. But like this weekend, for example, I had a very, very, very quiet weekend. You know, I didn't really do very much. I spent quite a lot of time just like lounging in bed, just watching Netflix. Um, and I didn't feel guilty about that because I know now that I'm allowed to do those things. It's almost like a recovery period. Whereas again, before I understood that I was neurodivergent, I would think, oh, you're lazy. You should be doing stuff at the weekends, you know, I would my my diary for work is crazy but my social diary also used to be crazy because I'd be like oh I've got to see these people I've got to see these friends and I'm, now I can say to myself no you don't have to you can just have some time to yourself I love being on my own I love my own my own space I'm I'm very happy like playing with my doll's house at weekends or you know, shutting myself away and just having that downtime. And I, and I didn't used to allow myself to have that time. Well, these things aren't viewed though, spending time on your own, shutting yourself away, doing something that, you know, might be seen as a special interest or something that you're hyper-focusing on mm. isn't seen as a normalized activity, is it outside of, of yeah. you know, your kind of neurodivergent tribe? It's mm. why does she want to spend time on her own and why isn't she super sociable and taking up the offer of all of these things? So it sounds like you've been making, already making adaptations and adjustments um, in your own life, accepting, like you say, and being very aware that rejection sensitivity is, is, is part and parcel of who you are. And how do I minimize perhaps some of those situations or how do I have some coping mechanisms to enable me to perhaps navigate some of this. Yeah. What about accommodations then? Because obviously you're, you work for yourself. You've carved out this, this life for yourself yeah. that plays to your strengths, that creates an environment for you that you know that you can thrive in. Um, yeah. got permission. You don't have to ask permission from anybody to, to work in the way that you need to work. So do you find yourself, Laura, then having to, ask for accommodations from other people because there's certain things that we can do can't we ourselves yeah adaptations and adjustments but do you ever find yourself in a situation then where you need accommodations like I don't know for this podcast interview what um, what helps you what do you need I think knowing no like knowing what we were going to be talking about was really really helpful also meeting you beforehand was really really helpful I think what I will do a lot now that I didn't used to do is, again, particularly around the rejection sensitivity, is if if I get a, a, a text or, you know, if I if I feel like, oh, if someone's cross with me, someone's upset with me, I I can now say, oh, I'm feeling a bit rejection sensitive. Did, you know, did you, um, can I just ask you what you meant by your email or, um feeling a bit rejection sensitive I haven't spoken to you for a few days is everything okay and 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 then I get the kind of like yeah god sorry Laura yeah we're, 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 um, everything's fine I was just in a rush or I've just been really really busy so I can verbalize that now um I can also say to people like I I really struggle with a wall of text like if someone emails me or even whatsapps me and it's just a wall of text I'm like I can't 
read that and and then I will just kind of like ignore the email or just keep it unread for ages so again what I can now do is go back to people and say um would you mind when you email me in future like breaking like sending me like bullet points or paragraphs because I, I find it very difficult to read like whole walls of text so that's been really really helpful I just want to go back to something that you said though because you said something that just made me think of something about being self-employed mm-hmm. I don't think I could ever work for anybody again now that I've been self-employed I really enjoy the like you said I'm, I'm my own boss but I also now recognize and I believe this is this is due to to autism that waking up every morning and having a completely different routine was really difficult for me at first like when I worked in a school at least I knew what time I had to get up in the morning what time I had to leave my house where I was going when I'd be home and being self-employed every single day that I work is really really different so that used to make me very anxious. So I'd wake up in the morning and I'd be like, oh, I'm really anxious. What am I doing today? What am I doing today? Um, so I now have, I'm a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to computers, but like moving on to a electronic calendar, like has really, really helped me. I do have a PA as well, which some people are like, it's a bit of an expense, isn't it? I don't know what I do without a PA. She, she is like my right hand woman I don't know how I'd cope without her I regularly check my diary to see what's coming up like so I can I don't wake up in that morning with that horrible feeling of I don't have a routine today I don't know what I'm doing um and that's only recently kind of clicked in my head of why I need that yeah and that's often the conflict though isn't it when you're autistic ADHD is that you have this the ADHD part of you has this you know this this abundance of attention that you can put onto so many different things it's yeah. not deficit attention you know you have too much too much yeah and you want to do lots of different things and you're clearly doing lots of different things mm. but in order to do all those lots of different things it creates an imbalance doesn't it on your autistic side of you which is actually I really thrive on routine and structure and yeah. all of these things yeah. finding that balance when you are ADHD of making it work yeah. um, can be can be a real challenge can't it mm. so it sounds like then in the accommodations that you're talking about this is about communication this is about communication yeah. styles communication differences about being able to say yeah. actually this is what I need yeah. um, and when you're able to recognize that and you're able to then start verbalizing that it's a whole different ball game then isn't it completely it's- different yeah it makes it so much easier um my husband and I went on holiday in October and we 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 went to a hotel. We don't normally do hotel holidays. And he said to me, after we'd been there about three days, he said, I feel like I need to apologize to you. And I said, why? And he said, I can tell this, you're struggling. I was like, I am a bit. And he was like, I can tell this isn't really your kind of place. And I I that was such a relief to me. And he actually said to me on the holiday, I think you're autistic as well like because like I just the envi- the environment I could not cope with this environment at all like I couldn't cope with the size of this hotel I couldn't cope with the having to go out in the morning and like find a sunbed and it was a different sunbed every morning like I I this food in the breakfast room was different every morning I was like I, I can't deal with this 
normally we go to a villa so it's like five, we've actually been back to the same villa in Spain about five times because we both we, we know the place and I know people sometimes say well we don't you want to explore other places it's like no we like this place we know where everything is and but that was again it was so such a relief on that holiday for him to say I can tell you I'm, I can tell you're struggling and I was like yeah I am a bit like I didn't have to hide that um and then we kind of turned the, the hotel into like it was like we, we made it into almost like a parody of like a holiday because there was just so much it was just the most neurotypical place I've ever been to in my life um and I felt I just felt excruciatingly uncomfortable mm. for the first few days that we were there I, I I couldn't get my bearings I I I just it was awful I, I just couldn't I just I've never been in a place like it um but I also now know that we'll never go back to anywhere anywhere like that again so you've been talking about environments there this was my next question actually hearing you talk about you're starting to recognize the environments in which you need mm. to thrive so this isn't just about a work environment this is about where you spend your downtime this is about yeah. where you can holiday how you want to do that what feels familiar so you've clearly recognized haven't you environments in which you need to thrive so what brings you joy you've talked about your doll's house what what else brings you joy laura my my work brings me a huge amount of joy I, I love what I do my friends I have amazing friends that, that I value so much and I've been friends with some of my friends for such a long time and I I, I truly truly love my friends my being with my family being at home um, my pets I have dogs a cat who I adore I've, I've my family have always had horses being outside nature yeah those, those are things that I love um if you could think about going back to being a younger version of you mm. and now that you have this you know I often describe it, it's just like wiping the windscreen and you know mm. you wipe away and you can see things very differently you have a completely different view so if you were to think about your childhood then can you think about an autistic experience that that was an autistic experience that you can now look back on and say, actually, yeah, I can see that for what it is now. Maybe that you didn't recognise previously. Well, I, I wrote I wrote a post about it this morning actually, and it was um, prompted by the fact that it's Children's Mental Health Awareness Week, and I I always have a bit of an issue with these weeks because children don't need a mental health awareness week. Children just need mental health awareness all the time, and I was I don't know what prompted it, but I had a really visual memory of going into a local town centre, my local town centre, um, I must have been about 10, and they were doing the Pepsi challenge, Do you remember the Pepsi challenge? Mm -hmm. And there was this sort of stand set up and all these very excitable, you know, young women jumping around in Pepsi t-shirts. And my mum my was like, oh, they're doing the Pepsi challenge. And everyone was talking about it at school, they were talking about it on the media. And my mum was like, pushing me and I was like no I don't want to do it I don't want to do it and 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 they spotted and they were like come on come on and I was like I, I can't do it I was literally rooted to the spot um and my I remember like my mum walking me back to the car like I don't understand why you didn't want to do it you know you're so you know why wouldn't you do it and I remember feeling embarrassed and ashamed and thinking well loads of kids would love to do that but I just couldn't do it I couldn't I couldn't 
bear the thought of all those people looking at me, watching me, if I got it wrong, like I would have, I just couldn't do it. And I think now that's, that's, you know, that's down to, to my neurodivergence. The fact that being on the spot like that, I, I mean, even now just thinking about it makes me feel anxious. Yeah, being looked at uh, and, and this, this is related to eye contact isn't it because it's not just the eye contact thing it's it's other people looking at you yeah um feeling those eyes on you and you know our eyes mm. are part of that whole nervous system in our brain aren't they they um they take in so much information it's too much I, I think the other thing that I now know that I used to do a lot when I was younger was I was like a little social chame- chameleon as well which is you know part of masking but I also have a very very visual mem- very visual uh, memory of, of walking into a parent's friend's house and there being a, a girl there similar age to me and check like making a really deliberate kind of effort to be like her so like talking like her pretend like saying oh yeah I like that as well when I didn't like the things that she was talking about. I remember this girl so vividly. She was like, she was, she was very different to me. I think she was visiting from London or something. And yeah, I just remember like, I've, I've got to change myself so that she'll like me. Like I didn't have a very strong sense of identity when I was younger. So I would, I would adapt and change constantly so that people would like me and, and, and that, so that I would fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, sort of coming back to now, I do feel that I can just be more authentically me now. And if I, I do kind of almost have this, I'm not quite there yet, but like, oh, if people like me, that's great. And if they don't, then it doesn't matter. Which takes me on to this next question, because you work with young people who are neurodivergent, you are neurodivergent, but if you could go back in time and give a compassionate message to your younger self, what would you say? What did you need to hear growing up? I think I would tell her that she was brilliant I'm gonna get emotional because I didn't think I was when I was younger I didn't realize like what a good person I was and like you know that little girl that couldn't stand to do that Pepsi challenge she now can stand up in front of 600 people and and talk really passionately and really confidently about what I believe in I couldn't do that when I was younger, but I can now. And I'm like, you know, I think I would just tell her that it wasn't normal to constantly have butterflies in your tummy. It wasn't normal to, you know, lie awake at night and, and worry about all the things that I worried about. That there was a different way to feel, that I didn't have to feel like that. Just to do something to make her feel more confident, for her to realise that, you know, she was a, a lovely person and, and a, a very kind person as well. I've always really cared about other people, like this notion that, autistic people don't have empathy is absolute rubbish like I'm probably one of the most empathetic people ever I experience too much empathy mm-hmm. you know I I have to really hold it back in a, in, a, in consult sometimes I'm like when parents get really emotional I get very emotional as well I've had to like compose myself it's hard um, isn't it because you feel you feel I feel other people I feel my emotions so strongly 
but I feel other people's emotions so strongly as well. I do have to tell you a funny story just to kind of make, just to sort of lie in the mood of it. Like I mentioned, I love animals. Like my one of my friends who's autistic as well, we kind of have this joke that I love dogs because I really, really, really love dogs. And I remember driving to work once and seeing a lady carrying a dog and I and I thought, oh my God, that dog's had an accident, it's been run over. And I got to work and I was completely hysterical. Like I could not stop crying. And my colleagues were like, oh, my God, Laura, what's happened? And I was like, oh, I was driving to work. I saw this lady and I think her dog's dead. And and they were like, do you know the lady? And I was like, no. <laughs> and like the whole day, I, I couldn't teach because I was just crying about this dog. And I could tell my colleagues were like, like all right, Laura, like, let it go now. It's just a dog. But I d- it wasn't that I was upset about the, the the dog. I was upset about the dog, but this lady's face, it was just like, that poor woman, what's happened? You know, so, yeah, I feel other people's emotions inc- incredibly strongly, like sometimes overwhelmingly so. And this is why we need to hear these stories, don't we? Because so much of what you're describing as we're talking and so much as what I hear from so many other women as, as they talk is this is all very much internalized experiences. And if our stories have never been heard, if we're late discovered and nobody sat down with us in an assessment, nobody has talked to us about our experiences, Um, our entire narrative is missing. It's missing from what we understand about how autism presents, particularly in women, particularly in girls. And you've dedicated your entire career to supporting and advocating for autistic people and you've got a book coming out haven't you this year Jessica Kingsley publishing Mm. the educated experience of PDA Mm. so what change do you feel that you're making and leading around autism and neurodiversity in 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 your in your bit of the world in your Mm. life what what do you feel that you're doing in terms of leading that change I I've I hope that what I'm doing is that I am becoming a voice for the for people who don't yet have a voice. Um, so whether that's the young people that I'm supporting or whether that's the parents, like I want people to understand neurodivergence and neurodiversity better. I don't want I, I don't want children to, to to continue to have these horrible negative traumatic experiences of education like all children have a right to education but all children have a right to an education that is fit for their purpose and that I currently that doesn't exist so what I'm what I'm completely driven by is to try and make their experiences more positive if there's a a parent that can say we understand our child better because of the work that Laura does or Ness does you know that's huge as well and so yeah I think I think that's what it is and I think that you know I don't there are too many young people that are sitting in schools miserable masking that that needs to change like if we if we have happier children we will have happier adults and I think the other thing is as well is that I really want us to stop looking at all the 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 difficulties and the deficits and the disorders like there's so much positivity around neurodivergence I do what I do because I'm neurodivergent not despite it Mm. 
have all the energy that I have. I have all the ideas and, and I see all those ideas through as well. I want us to get to a point where we just can celebrate all of those things as well and, and not see them as negatives. And and what change do you want to see in the world then? I'm asking this to every single guest on this podcast series. Obviously, you're doing this work yourself and you're leading this change. But for anybody who's listening to this episode today, mm. what's your call to action to them? What what do you want to see happen and change in the world? What can individuals do? I think don't be afraid to explore and accept and embrace your neurodivergence. Don't be don't feel like you have to hide it start small like even if it's just talking to like people that are closest to you or colleagues and saying you know either I have a diagnosis or I don't have a diagnosis but I self-identify and this is what I need you to do to help support me as well and I think the more people that do that then I think that will snowball. I think that will continue. That's going to help like all the generations behind us. And you know what I would really love, as I mentioned earlier, I would love for us one day to have a society where you don't have to have a diagnosis. That's what I would love. I think we're a long way away from that. I'd like us to, to move away from this deficit medical model. I'd like us to be able to just accept everybody's differences without questioning it. People shouldn't have to fight and pay and wait for diagnosis because those are barriers and, and people are constantly having to face those barriers. And some people can't even access a diagnosis no. privately, no. you know, because of cost, because of because cost, inaccessibility, because, because they're not exactly. elite. Yeah. Or even just because of executive functioning, you know, there's a huge amount of paperwork that goes into having a, an assessment, whether it's for you or your child. And, it's overwhelming it's yeah. not the, the assessment process in itself is actually not very neurodivergent friendly not at all and it's done completely in silo isn't it um yeah completely in silo yeah so if if people want to come and find you Laura we're going to put all of your links to your yeah. organizations and the work that you're doing um we'll put that in the episode link so people can find you if they they click below where do you want people to find you are you on are you on social media um yes so um the we've got a very active facebook page which is nest so if you just type in nest neurodivergent education support and training it's a very positive page um we share lots of you know, I like the page to be really positive. I share, you know, insights. Um, I share things that I hope are helpful. I share things that I think are funny. I did a post the other day about my socks, which was really popular because I can never find a matching pair of socks. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Laura Kirby. And then we have a website as well, which is www.nest.org. And there's a hyphen between the N and the E. Um, so that's yeah, they're, they're the easiest places to find us or find me. Well, thank you very much for your vulnerability and your courage and being very honest and open about your self-discovery journey that you're currently on. And I know that people listening to this will it, it will make a difference. You talking about your experience, what you've touched on will inevitably make a difference to people listening. So thank you, Laura. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
chapter 